Hello Poem fans and welcome to this week's episode of Poems A Penny Each. So this week we're going to have a look at the poem Lady Lazarus by Sylvia Plath. This is one of my favourite poets, Sylvia Plath. I love her. She She's actually also, this might sound a bit weird, but she's a dead crush. She's one of those um, historical figures from the past who I have a bit of a crush for. Anne Boleyn is, is another one. But Sylvia Plath definitely is one of those uh, poets that I think <clears throat> sadly becomes overshadowed by the issues that she had in life. When people talk about Sylvia Plath, they talk about suicide, they talk about mental health, they talk about failed relationships. And I think this cheapens and downgrades just what a, a, a wonderful poet she was, what a talented um, immensely potent voice that she was and and I know that particularly as you look at her work as it gets goes further on and she develops her, her voice as a poet particularly around the time when she started writing these poems which were published after her death by Ted Hughes definitely there's an edge to this there's an anger in these poems there's a rawness in these poems, an emotional kind of frailty in these poems that certainly are added and, and kind of they're made by the circumstances of her life. The, the fact that she was going through uh, health, mental health issues at this time, that her life was taking a turn that she hadn't expected and all the pressures that are, were put on women to be the perfect wife back then. The, the idea of, of a relationship ending, of a marriage failing, was something that was considered shocking to, to people back then. I mean, now marriage is, you know, the idea of a marriage lasting is something that's a bit shocking and you kind of have to do a double take. But in the, the 50s and the 60s, there was a lot of pressure on women on, and it was all this kind of... Um, manufactured idea of what a woman should be doing how a woman should behave and the failure of a marriage was as much you know was more often than not there was this kind of impression put on you didn't do better you could have done better you know that and and this was something that sylvia platt hated was the double standards that were set out before men and women that a woman's life was limited to gone to college learning skills that you could use to run a house your skill your career was to make a house to make a good home for your husband while he went out and conquered the world you would just find interesting dinners to present to his boss to help him advance in his career that was the kind of mindset of 1950s america particularly so for for like a, a woman to be in a situation where her husband wasn't there anymore, who had left her uh, for another woman, and the fact that she had failed at the one thing that she was meant to be good at by society's ideas, it, it, you could imagine that it would weigh heavy on her. And, and being already somebody who has issues with mental health, um, it would certainly trigger certain things. And you can feel this in her poems. Her poems blister with anger. And, you know, um, Daddy is another one that I, I quite like. 
um, there's a personal aspect of that poem to me because <clears throat> of a of the fact of having a strange daughter, so that that poem kind of has a rawness to it, you know, which is why I haven't discussed it, and I might I might come back to it and and elaborate further onto that. Uh, you know, the fact that in that poem I almost feel like I'm being chastised by my own daughter because she is chastising men in that poem for the fact that they've let her down and she was let down this poem is another poem but again she's blistering with rage she's owning up to her frailty and yet she's taken on the world and I love it I love the fact that this poem and you see Anne, um, like Anne Sexton Sylvia Platt belonged to a movement of people or was, is attached to a, a poetic movement from the 50s called the Confessionals who like to um, use themselves and their inner world, their, their, their mental state as a, a way of talking about, talking about the world. They were the subject. You write as the rule is, you write what your material is. And their material was themselves and what was going on in their heads. And like Anne Sexton, she herself took her own life. These poems are very uncomfortable to read because you, you know how, how it all ended. But even if you didn't know how it all ended, they are still very uncomfortable to read. They're still very hard to get your, your head around at times because if it, it's also raw. It's also personal. And when you consider the fact that the time when they were writing these poems, it was not c considered okay to be weak, to be frail. If you had mental health issues, you were locked away. Your husband could bundle you off into a home. You could have two doctors say, this woman is crazy. They were dumped into homes, strapped to, electri um, to batteries and given electric shock treatment. They were dosed up with pills. And, you know, so many women were just dumped in homes at this time for having even the least little bit of a frailty so to be a woman and to write about the fact that you have these issues that you have a problem in your head i think was very brave this poem whilst acknowledging the fact that the poet has weaknesses was also a confrontation it was a challenge and i'm gonna let the poet read her own work because as always I believe that a poet can do better justice than I can to the poem. So I'm going to have Sylvia Platt do the honour of reading Lady Lazarus and then I will explain some passages in it that stand out to me and why I think this poem is such a powerful piece of writing. Lady Lazarus I have done it again. One year in every ten I manage it, a sort of walking miracle, my skin bright as a Nazi lampshade, my right foot a paperweight, my face a featureless fine Jew linen. Peel off the napkin, oh my enemy. Do I terrify? Yes, yes, Herr Professor, it is I. Can you deny the nose, the eye pits, the full set of teeth? The sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh the grave cave ate will be at home on me. 
and I a smiling woman. I'm only 30, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments. The peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see them unwrap me hand and foot. The big strip tease. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone. I may be Japanese. Nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. The first time it happened, I was ten. It was an accident. The second time I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused shout, a miracle that knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. So, so, Herr Doctor. So, Herr Enemy. I am your opus. I am your valuable. The pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. Ash, ash, you poke and stir, flesh, bone. There is nothing there, a cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Hear God, hear Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. All right, so that was the poem. And like I said, the poet always reads better than I could. Although I am going to read out some lines that I think are impressive and stand out in from this poem and why I love it. Um, there's there's a number of recurring images in this poem that that come up or a number of themes I should say themes. Sorry, my accent might try you there. So the first one is talking about death and the fact that she has died before but she managed to survive. She was considered dead before but she's come back. So there's this idea of death and resurrection, albeit to herself. So there's that imagery. There's um imagery which references um the Nazi um brutality of the holocaust and the victimhood of the jewish people and uh, she refers to that one uh quite a bit and then there's this sense of voyeurism and being kind of you know something that it's kind of like a spectacle she's a spectacle 
but she doesn't like it. So these are three themes and I'm going to pick out certain parts of the poem that I feel deal with that. So the first part, the idea of death and return. She hits that point pretty much from the from the starting blocks when she says, I've done it again. One year in every ten, I manage it. Well, what does she manage? Well, later on, she goes on to talk about this. Um, where she says, nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. Okay, so she's she's died two times before, as we'll see. She's, but each time she comes back and she's exactly the same. She was the exact same person. Nevertheless, I am the same person. I've died twice before, but yet here I am. I'm still me. The first time it happened, I was 10. It was an accident. The second time I meant it, to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut like I rocked shut as a she as a seashell. Whoa. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. So in this part she's talking about the idea of the fact that she died and but she came back and yet even though she had died and and was resurrected as it were, she even though she died but she came back <clears throat> there was no transformation. She was still the same person. She was still that, that same person who she was. And again, she hits on this point where she says, it's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical comeback in broad day. to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amazed shout, a miracle that knocks me out. Okay, so that part, she's, again, she's referencing the fact that, you know, she, she's come back and she's the same. She's in the same place. She's the same person. And it's the same every time somebody says, oh, it's a miracle. And, and it knocks her out because she doesn't feel like it's a miracle. She doesn't feel that there's any difference. It's just her still there, the same person. Why do, is this a problem? Well, let's go back to the next or to the second stanza because she starts off with the second imagery of victimhood just the the other theme of victimhood and she starts off by talking or she starts off she says a sort of walking miracle my skin bright as a nancy lampshade my right foot a paperweight my face a featureless fine dew linen peel off the napkin oh my enemy do i terrify so here she's she's drawing on the imagery of the Holocaust and the victimhood of the Jews to refer to the fact that she feels a victim herself. She identifies with their victimhood because she is powerless to do anything that changes. There's this all pervasive power that is controlling her life in a way that she has no say. And it's an she considers that an enemy. Um, the idea of the Nazi lampshade goes back to the um, account of the wife of the commandant of Buchenwald, Buchenwald um, concentration camp. Her name is Ilse Koch and she was believed to have made um, a lampshade or to have 
lampshades that were made out of human skin particularly the skin of her prisoners people say that there's no there's some people that say that it doesn't happen but then again you know these people are Egypt because there's quite a lot of evidence to show that you know the Nazis did do what they did and more you know they did do the Holocaust the, the Holocaust actually happened and anyone who says it doesn't um, hasn't gotten a clue and are deluded um, and the picture there's a photograph where the human remains are put on a table and the people from the nearby town were made to come in and look at this stuff they were made to see what the nazis did while they sat by silently to for them to understand just how brutal this was and how inhuman and just what kind of psychopaths the nazis actually were and so anyone who says that that didn't happen i think is just a you know kind of needs to have a dose of reality because it did happen and of course like part of me isn't comfortable with the idea of a non-jew using the suffering of jews to kind of explain her suffering because certainly it could be argued and and rightfully so that it's never really good to use the suffering of others to explain your suffering especially when you're not being dragged into um, a factory to, to be, uh, like a killing factory like Auschwitz was or any of these other camps but Sylvia Plath feels that this imagery is important she uses this imagery to refer to the fact that as a woman her life is heavily restricted she is controlled on what she can and can't do just as the the nazis controlled the jews on what they could do where they could go when they could do it that's what she felt that western society was doing to her with the restrictions that it had put on women as to what kind of thing that only that women could do and we know that she resented this because in her diaries and letters which have recently been published I say recently, but a couple of years back, you see that there's resentment of the fact that as a woman, she couldn't do the same kind of things. Her her goal, her life was to be, you know, find the best recipe for that pot roast that, you know, your husband can bring his boss back to the house and put on the fine show of, you know, good civilised household and that you're capable of running the household while your husband goes off and conquers the world. And she hated that. She felt that she should be able to be what she wanted to be in life and not be told what she what she couldn't or could, could or couldn't do. And so she viewed the restrictions that were put on women as something similar to the restrictions that the Nazis have put on the Jews. And so she uses this imagery quite a few times she touches on this to express her victimhood. The next... Um, kind of image or theme that she goes on to look at in this poem so she we've looked at how she talks about death and her death and the fact that she's come back but she's always come back as herself and she resents this 
because at the end of the day, each time she's come back, she's come back into the state of victimhood, the, the, the state of oppression that she can't get out of. So the, the next um, kind of theme in this poem is the idea of voyeurism. So now she's talking about her next death. And the fact is, is that this death will have witnesses. People will watch it, but they'll be paying to watch it. It's kind of almost like a um, burlesque attitude here. She talks about the peanut crunching crowd. So they, they who shoves in to see. What did they shove in to see? Them unwrap me hand and foot. The big striptease, gentlemen, ladies. These are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone. Nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. So, again, it's drawn on that point. She hasn't changed. People are going to come on, come on, come all, have a, have a look at this. Watch what I'm going to do. And it's building up to this idea. And then she kind of, you know, rather cavalier, like, just says, dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels like real. Or I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. So again, this is kind of like scoffing at the whole thing. She's laughing at death. It's, you know, a blasé kind of, you can almost imagine it with the cigarette, waving the hand, holding the cigarette around, going, you know, it's an art. Like everything else, I do it well. You know, whatever. So, but it's not just dying. That's what she's saying. This isn't just about death. Each time I've died, I've come back. So come and watch me die and come and watch me come back. That That's what she's saying. And then she addresses her enemy, her doctor, her enemy. Okay, so this is, this is an un, unnamed character who she's now challenging. And, and she's confronting him and she's saying... Like, I'm like your pet project. I'm your opus. I'm your valuable, the pure gold baby that melts with a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. So she's challenging this unknown character and saying, I know, like, I'm your pet project. Because it's like, I'm your opus. I'm your valuable, the pure gold baby. I, I know that I'm like your work in progress i'm something that you have put value to that you have a vested interest in i don't think i misunderestimate it or i underestimate your great concern so she's challenging she says i know why you're interested don't think i can't see behind the veneer you're putting up it's a challenge the, the the problem here is though is that she like she's challenging him she is confronting him but yet she still realizes that she needs him because ash ash you poke and stare flesh and bone there's nothing there so you know she's challenging this man who she's picked out or this person i should say her doctor could be anyone obviously it's very easy to put Ted Hughes into this, known the the story, but you know she might not have been talking about Ted Hughes. I mean, let's face it, she probably was, 
but she's kind of whittled him down to this kind of evil character who has manipulated and controlled her and she knows she sees she's telling him I see through you I see through what you're doing again she goes back to the holocaust imagery of a cake of soap because there was a story that they had made soap out of human skin out of out of human fat so she's 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 saying that again she's given that warning again referring going back to the whole victimhood idea that there's nothing there a cake of soap a wedding ring famously the jews had their wedding rings taken off them and melted the gold ripped out of their teeth so it's that whole thing again i know i know you what you are you're brutal you're you're saying you're helping me I know you. I, I do not think I underestimate your great concern. You're you're ripping me off again. You're you're tearing me apart. Hear God, hear Lucifer. Beware, beware. And then we come to the most the the best part of the poem. Out of the ash, I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. It's the challenge. She's saying I'm gonna die, but when I come back. You will be sorry because this time you've taken away so much of who I am. There's nothing of me left. So when I come back, I will be reinvented. And that it's that, that last line I think is so powerful. And of course, the thing about it is, is that Sylvia Platt wasn't a feminist poet or a feminist in the way that we consider feminists to be. Um, she kind of predated the, you know, the diff because there's different ways of feminism, and you know, so there's the feminist like uh, Mary Wollenscroft who lived during the the age of reason, lived hundreds of years back. Um, I say Mary Wollenscroft, but I actually don't can't remember if that's her name. But there there have been feminists around for hundreds of years, so obviously you can't say that she wasn't feminist. But she became a feminist icon in the 70s. And it's poems like this that enabled that. Because it was that challenge to man. It was that challenge to the idea of the dominating husband. And it's very easy to see, to put what you want into the works of poem. That's what poetry is all about. And and for me, while I feel that she wasn't quite... like in, At the end of the day, this is a poem of a woman whose husband had left her. And she's angry at him. And and she maybe she's seeing, you know, at the time when she's writing this, maybe she didn't think that she was going to try and take her life again. Maybe she saw what was happening to her then as a sort of death. And she had nothing left, but she was going to remake herself. Everything that she had had been ripped apart. Her life had been torn apart and, 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 and torn to shreds. And there were bits of her everywhere, as it were. But she was going to come out of the ash of this moment as another woman who was going to, to, to like just at last she was free from the boundaries of society as she saw it. And I think that's what makes her such a great feminist poet in the end because she said, I am, I will eat men like air. And then in Daddy as well, there's another poem from this period where again she's throwing off the need from of, of men she's going to stand on her own two feet sadly we never got to see how she would progress um 
her mental health just got got too got the better of her and 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 she she lost her life to it sadly but i i just i just find this poem to be such a raw visceral poem but a powerful poem and like i said there's moments of hysteria there's moments of kind of carnivalesque uh delirium but it, it's such a powerful statement and i think unfortunately she did come back there is another version of her there but it's this kind of myth which isn't quite as as good as the real thing at all not even close and not even as good as she probably thought that she would be when she reinvented herself i don't see this as a poem um, where she's talking about how she's going to kill herself i see this as a poem of somebody who is saying that she's going to reinvent herself from the ashes of the destroyed marriage and the destroyed life that she had built with her husband for seven years and was left with just bits of ruination memories and, and what have you and so while a lot of people might see this as a statement of the fact that she intended to kill herself to me i don't see it as that I see that she was referring to the end of her marriage and the end of the life as she knew it as a form of death and that she was going to reinvent herself. So again, check out the show notes for um, the, the, the words of the poem so you can read it yourself for more information about Sylvia Platt. I'm also going to have a link to the poem where you can hear it on Spotify if you want to listen to it again. I strongly urge you to read Sylvia Platt's work and to just put aside the idea of or your preconceived notions of of what her life of what her poetry is because of how her life ended. Just forget about the myth of Sylvia Platt and look at her as just a poet writing about her life at that moment. And and I think you'll you'll see she was definitely one of one of the best poets to come out of America. Um, and still is, I think. Anyway, that's that's um, Lady Lazarus. Check it out. And thanks for listening. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate the podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the links in the show notes for more information about the poet and to read the poem we looked at this week. And also check out the link to learn more about my poetry. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, stay safe.